Well, good morning, Hallows Church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff, and it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here with the Hallows. I have been serving up at our North Seattle Expression since its launch just about a year ago, a little over a year ago now, and it's, <clears throat> it's been a great journey. We've been just moving forward into the future by faith as you have been here, but I do always enjoy being back here with you to, um, uh, to see you and to open our Bibles together and to explore God's Word together, and that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 is the passage we'll be uh, exploring today, verses 1 to 15, the passage you heard just a few moments ago by our friend Eric. Now, I think there was a little bit of a mix-up in the uh, sheet that you received on your way in. It's, uh, uh, it says Andrew on it. It has some blanks that you fill out. That's not the sermon I'm going to be given today. Uh, we're pe- preaching from the same passage, but that's his outline, and mine's a little bit different, so sorry about that. Now, next Sunday, of course, is Easter, and uh, as Bryant mentioned, we do hope you'll join us at one of our three gatherings up at North Seattle at 9 a.m., here at 1045 a.m., and at our new location in Fremont, just across from the Woodland Park Zoo at our new time, gathering time as well uh, up there at 4 p.m. And of course, if next Sunday is Easter Sunday, that means today, this Sunday, is Palm Sunday. It's what Christians refer to as Palm Sunday, and this marks the day that, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It's his triumphal entry, as it is called, and this entry into Jerusalem by Jesus, it's going to set off a remarkable uh, chain reaction of events over the week that would follow, that would forever change the course of human history. And the Bible has much to say about this short period of time between when Jesus uh, rides into town on Palm Sunday and when he gets up and walks away from the grave on Easter Sunday, one week later. In fact, this final week of Jesus' life accounts for nearly half of this Gospel of Matthew that we're studying today. The first half of the book of Matthew covers three years of Jesus' life and ministry on earth, while the last half of Matthew covers only his final seven or so days. And friends, that is quite obviously cueing us into the importance of what is about to transpire, all beginning with this passage today, Matthew chapter 21, where uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem and really begins in a lot of ways, to assert himself. He begins to uh, really declare himself as the coming king and the coming Messiah who God had promised was going to come and was going to set everything right that had gone so very terribly wrong. But what's interesting is that up to this point in Jesus' public life and ministry, he had, he had done many incredible things and he did have large followings along the way wherever he went. But for the most part, he had also quietly kind of Uh, slipped in and out of places without too much attention, without too much uh, fanfare. He would often, in fact, tell people not to reveal to anyone who he was and and what he had done for them. And also, whenever a crowd gathered around him and wanted to kind of prop him up and make uh, make him their leader after seeing the miracles that he would perform, Jesus would often quietly slip away and, and move on to a new place. You see that in John chapter 6, verse 15, right after feeding 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him their king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, it was not yet his time then to declare himself as king. And so as, as he often did, he slipped out of that situation and he moved on. But all that was about to change. You see, Jesus was about to go public in a new way, and 
in a more direct way and really in a, more, a very provocative way as well. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on this day in a, in a way that really begins to force the issue about him and about his identity. Over the course of the final week of Jesus' life, he's going to be forcing the issue. He's going to be asking each and every person he encountered then, and he's going to be asking each and every person since then, including you and I today, to make a decision to make a decision about him, whether you're going to crown him or whether you're going to crucify him, because what he's going to show us here is that there's really no middle ground. He did not really leave that option available to us. And so let's see what goes down in this passage and what it means for us today. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 15. Head over there if you're not already there, if you would like to track along with me. And there are really three points I want to draw out of this passage as we consider Palm Sunday today. I think we see th three very important things about Jesus. We see the paradoxical arrival of Jesus. We see the confrontational agenda of Jesus. And we see the transformational effects of Jesus. First, the paradoxical arrival of the king. Now, leading up to this day, we know that there was actually a sort of warrant out for Jesus' arrest. In John chapter 11, verse 57, we're told that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And yet Jesus, he did not seem overly concerned about this as he prepared to enter Jerusalem. And far from flying under the radar or perhaps slipping into hiding as he often had done, Jesus was about to really move into the open. He was about to move into Jerusalem very deliberately, very publicly, and in, and in every way, according to plan. And I say Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem according to plan because there was indeed a plan from the very beginning. In fact, that's why Jesus came to live among us in the first place in order to execute that plan. And that's precisely why he was moving toward Jerusalem at this time in the way that he was. Listen to what Jesus says to his closest disciples just one chapter earlier about this plan. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And so that's the plan, according to Jesus. And surely this confused his disciples in many ways. We know the disciples were often confused when Jesus started talking in these ways. After all, what in the world kind of plan was that? We're also told in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we're told that Jesus was he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus, he, he knew what was coming. This means that nothing that was going to go down over the course of this next week was going to catch him off guard. None of this was going to, going to surprise Jesus. But that is not to say that this would be easy for him as a fully human being, as a man who was made like us in every respect, Jesus would struggle greatly 
with many complex emotions. He would struggle greatly, even to the point of sweating, drops of blood, anguished and overwhelmed. He would struggle knowing what was coming, but he would not be surprised by what was coming. And what a fascinating dynamic that is. And so one of the deeply paradoxical things we see here about our God as we study this passage is that Jesus is in absolute control as he arranges and as he orchestrates the series of events that would, that would lead to his own demise, and that would lead to his own death. And if that is not paradoxical, I do not know what is, that the creator of the universe and everything in it, including you and I, would plan beforehand to become one of us and to bleed for us and to die for us and to rise again for us so that we could be reconciled to our creator. But that's exactly what the Bible and the gospel says to us. Now in verses one and two, the plan begins to unfold. Before heading toward Jerusalem, Jesus sends a couple of his disciples into Bethphage and listen to what he says. Listen to how he is directing these events. He said, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. You see, Jesus and his disciples, they were outside of Jerusalem as this passage begins. And there were many villages outside of Jerusalem, and Bethphage was one of them. Bethany was another one that was very close by. You may recall that Bethany was the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. In verse 6, we're told that the disciples did as Jesus had instructed. They went into Bethphage and got the donkey. They brought it back, and it says they put their cloaks on it. And Jesus got on that donkey. Verse 8 says there was a crowd, and the crowd was spreading their cloaks on the road. And it says others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road too. And it says the crowd went before him, and the crowd was behind him as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem. Now, this is most certainly another paradoxical aspect of the arrival of our king. This is really quite unbelievable that on the most important day where Jesus would ride into Jerusalem to declare his authority, to, to declare himself as the rightful king of all creation and the king of every human heart, how interesting that this coming king would be coming, riding on the back of a donkey, this would have been quite confusing for many, perhaps comical to others, but it also would have been understood by some too. There would have been many different types of responses and reactions to what the people were observing uh, Jesus do on that day. But one thing is to be sure, kings in that day and any day really, they did not ride on donkeys. No, a powerful and conquering king would ordinarily ride a mighty war horse, a very large and very powerful, a very impressive war horse, that's what they would do. But not Jesus. Jesus rides on the back, we're told, of a donkey. Not only a donkey, but in Luke's account of this, he tells us that this donkey was young and had never been ridden. And so it is entirely possible that this donkey might have barely even been strong enough to carry a full-size man for very far. In fact, this young donkey might even have been somewhat unstable and, and wobbly as Jesus rode this animal toward Jerusalem on that day. 
And this, friends, is how Jesus would come riding in to declare his kingship. This is how he would make his long-awaited entrance into what was the epicenter of Jewish power in that day. And so can you imagine that? What a peculiar scene this must have been. And just for a moment, let's put ourselves into the shoes of the disciples. Of course, they had seen Jesus do many incredible things. They'd seen him calm storms. They'd seen him heal the sick. They had seen him restore sight to the blind. They knew his power. And so they were ready. They were looking forward to this day where Jesus was finally going to step up and to step out and to really assert himself and move into Jerusalem. And so you can imagine what some of the disciples must have been thinking when Jesus got on the back of this young donkey. Some of them were probably thinking, uh, it's great that Jesus is finally going to make his big entrance and finally assert himself. But this can't be right, can it? This doesn't seem right. Some of them may have been thinking, you know, when, when we get into Jerusalem, we really need to talk to Jesus about this. When we get into Jerusalem, we probably need to hire a good PR person because Jesus doesn't seem to have good instincts on this because he was sending some very mixed signals here in what he was doing. Now, the truth of the matter is there was a very good reason why Jesus chose that donkey, and, and you and I are told what that reason is right here in verses 4 and 5. It says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, referring to Zechariah, saying, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so this is a reference to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, written, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, talking about the coming king and Messiah. And Jesus most certainly knew this prophecy. He knew of this prophecy. So he knew exactly what he was doing when he sent for that donkey and when he got on that donkey. Now, not all of those in the crowd and not even all of those close to Jesus would have necessarily understood this at the time. But Jesus, he knew exactly what he was doing and he knew exactly what he was saying by doing this. And what he was saying by doing this was that the king has arrived and the king is coming in. But don't miss what else is being said here in verse four as the author quotes Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Friends, this is my God and your God through his prophet Zechariah telling his people that their, their great and long-awaited king would come to them, not in power, not in force, not in strength, but humbly and gently and meekly. God's power is quite often displayed in ways that people do not expect in ways that may even look foolish, in ways that may look weak, in ways that even may look like defeat. This is the paradoxical arrival of our king coming humbly, sitting on the back of a donkey, planning and plotting his own demise, orchestrating his own death so that through his death, you and I might find life. Verse 8 tells us that by the time that Jesus got on that donkey before heading into Jerusalem, there was already a crowd. A crowd had already formed. And so the crowd that is being talked about was not a crowd that formed after entering uh, Jerusalem. The passage says the donkey arrived for Jesus, and it says the crowd was there. And in verse 9, we see that the crowd was going before him and behind him. It says they were shouting, they were ready. 
They knew, they sensed that something big was about to go down. You see, for three years, Jesus, he had been building his ministry toward this day. For three years, he had performed one miracle after another, after another. For three years, he had healed the sick, he had fed the hungry, he had cured the sick. For three years, he had delivered people from all that that binds them. And do you know what Jesus did only a very short time before this entry into Jerusalem? He performed one of his greatest miracles of all. He went to the home of Mary and Martha in Bethany, very close to where they were in this very moment. And he raised their brother Lazarus from death after he had been dead for four days. And so there would have been much buzz about Jesus in these parts. Word was spreading. People were talking. This crowd from these villages, they had been primed by Jesus in the days leading up to this very moment. In fact, there was perhaps no other crowd that understood the power of Jesus as much as this crowd from this region who had just witnessed witnessed Jesus bring a dead man back to life. Friends, Jesus had orchestrated not just the arrival of this donkey, but the arrival of this crowd too in verse 8. He is in complete control. He's directing events. In fact, he's forcing the issue and he's making sure that when he enters Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, this crowd would be declaring and celebrating as loudly as possible that the king has arrived and the king is coming in. Now, of course, what many were not considering was exactly which king they were celebrating, what type of king they were actually expecting and what they, what they thought that king might actually do. Nevertheless, this crowd was fired up. They were shouting, they were singing, they were celebrating. And it must have been quite a scene along the way because when we get down to verse 10, we're told that by the time uh, Jesus and this crowd made their way into Jerusalem, it says the whole city was stirred up asking the question, who is this? And what Jesus does next is quite fascinating. He's going to help answer that question by what he does next. Though Jesus rode into the city humbly on the back of a donkey, we're quite quickly going to see a very different Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. And as we do, we're going to see something not about the paradoxical arrival of Jesus, rather we're going to see something about the confrontational agenda of Jesus. You see, almost immediately after entering Jerusalem, we're told that Jesus, um, no doubt with some of this crowd still in tow, he went into the temple in Jerusalem and he began acting quite aggressively and quite erratically. This humble king, meek and mild Jesus, who, who rode into town on a On a lowly donkey, he goes walking into the temple and he begins acting rather violently. There's really no other way to describe it. And this is the only place really in the Bible where he does this sort of thing. And from the various accounts of this scene in the four Gospels, we do have a fair amount of detail about what happened in this scene. We know that Jesus, he made a whip and he was using it. He's flipping over tables, he's yelling, he's driving people out, he's rearranging things, he's destroying property. So what in the world is going on? Why would Jesus do these things? Now, in order to make sense of all this, there are some things we need to understand this morning about this temple in Jerusalem. You see, in that day, the temple was far more than a building. It was far more than a cathedral or a church. 
You know, in that time, the temple was the actual place where, where God's presence dwelt. It was the actual place where you could meet and encounter God personally. It was God's house, so to speak, and this, this is the temple. And in comes Jesus. He walks into the temple, and he says, my house will not be used in these ways. Jesus, he shows up in God's house, and he comes in, essentially calling it his house, He starts disrupting things. He's moving things around. He's rearranging the furniture. He's doing things, really, that only the owner of the house has any right to do. The only person who can rearrange the furniture in a house is the person who who owns that house. And Jesus comes in, and he starts acting like everything there belongs to him. He comes in, really, asserting his authority, forcing the issue, and even declaring his divinity just as he did when he rode in on that donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. What he's doing here, too, is he's declaring quite assertively that the king has arrived and the king is coming in. This is no doubt one of the reasons why the Pharisees were indignant in verse 15. This is no doubt why they would soon intensify their efforts to bring Jesus down. How dare he come into the temple and say these things and and do these things? But Jesus, he knew exactly what he was doing. He's coming in. He's forcing the issue. He's forcing people to make a decision about him, whether whether he is a king or a crazy man, whether they're going to crown him or whether they're going to crucify him. Now, a second thing we need to understand about the temple is that it was not only a place of worship where God's presence was to be enjoyed and experienced by his people, but the temple was also a place of sacrifice. Now, this is why, some of the, why the money changers and sellers were there in the first place. It was the place where offerings for sin were made. This is the, referring to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that God himself put in place for his people. And under this sacrificial system, the Jewish people knew that you couldn't just approach God in any way that you wanted. There had to be an offering It had to be a payment of sorts for the sin that separated them from their God. They knew this, so the temple was was a place of meeting God, but if you wanted to meet God there, there had to be an offering. You had to bring your offering, and there had to be a sacrifice, and this often took the form of a lamb or a goat or a bird. And this particular day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem was no accident. You see, it was the start of Passover in Jerusalem, And people would have been coming from all over the world and converging on Jerusalem in order to make their sacrifice and in order to spend time with their God. And often, rather than traveling with their own animals, the uh, people that traveled to Jerusalem during this Passover week, they would purchase one after arriving in the city. And so there was, in fact, a very large and lucrative business that kind of grew up around the temple and all based on this sacrificial system. So these are the reasons why money changers and the selling of animals was taking place in the temple. But if that's the case, then then why would Jesus react in the way that he did? Weren't these sellers and money changers in in the temple just doing what they were supposed to be doing? Didn't the Bible actually call for these very things? God did call for these things, but there was a problem in this. We're told that when Jesus entered the temple, he saw that the money changers and the buyers and sellers of animals, they were, they were inside the temple. That was the problem. The problem wasn't so much that those things were happening. The problem was more, 
where those things were happening. All of these things were taking place inside the temple, inside the place where people should have been praying, inside the place where people should have been worshiping, where they should have been encountering and experiencing their God. Instead, there was a lot of noise and commotion. It was like a street fair with street vendors, busy and chaotic. And I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus reacted so strongly. I think this is why he started disrupting and destroying things and flipping tables over. This is also why Jesus said in verse 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer and you make it a den of robbers. A den of robbers who were were robbing God's people of the sanctity of this sacred space and who were robbing God's people of of the depth of their worship. You see, all of these activities that were good and necessary activities, they were getting too far in. They were happening inside the temple. They were getting in too close, and because they were getting in too close, they were interfering fundamentally with with how God's people were engaging and connecting with God. These activities, in a sense, were becoming obstacles and barriers that were, in many ways, crowding God out within his own house. This is why Jesus acted these ways. This is why he goes into the temple and begins yelling and cracking whips and turning tables. Because after all, isn't that what Jesus is really all about? Isn't that one of the primary reasons he came into this world in the first place? That is to to clear away and to overturn every obstacle and every barrier that stands in between God and his people. And I think Jesus also is asking us to consider today how much, how much our own lives may be like what, is going on, what was going on in that temple with lots of commotion and busyness, lots of routine and ritual, lots of activities and events. There was nothing wrong with the money changing and the selling. These were good and necessary things in that day. But they got too far inside. They had become a distraction They were crowding God out. And Jesus went after those things. And at times he will go after those things in your own life too. One of the ways that you can tell Jesus is in your life is he he starts to expose those things which are too far in. Good things, not necessarily bad things, but things that are interfering with, with your relationship with God. Do you know what I'm talking about? It could be your kids or your career or your calendar. It might be money or success or reputation. It can be just about anything, really. But we see in this passage, don't we, how strongly Jesus feels about those things that we allow to get in too close and to crowd God. And so what is it in your own life today that's getting too far in? And that's crowding out the king. And will you let Jesus come in to flip that table over and to begin rearranging things for you? This leads us to our third and final point where we see the transformational effects of the king. Now, in a way, a Christian is somebody who has had his or her own personal Palm Sunday where the king makes his entrance. The king comes into your life, sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes paradoxically, and he begins to assert himself. 
he begins to act like he owns the place. And I think perhaps what Jesus is saying to you and I today, he's saying, if I am in your life, if you say that you are mine, if you say that I am king, I do have the right to come in. I do have the right to come in whenever and however I choose and to begin forcing the issue in one way or another, to begin rearranging some things in your life, to begin driving some things out of your life. So have you ever sensed Jesus doing that in your own life? He will come in at different times in different ways and begin dealing with you in your life, not only when you first become a Christian, but also as you progress and grow as a Christian. He will stake a claim to different areas of your life that you may be letting get too far in. And as he does, things may get uncomfortable and unsettling. At times, he will force the issue. And this may actually be good news for some of you today. You may feel like your life is a bit of a mess in this moment and you're feeling convicted about certain things. You feel a change is needed. You feel a change is coming. And one of the reasons you may be feeling these things is because the king has arrived and the king is coming in and he intends to clear away and, all, and overturn all of the things that you are allowing to come between you and your king. I hope you've sensed Jesus doing this in your life because if you follow a Jesus who never challenges or convicts you, if you believe in a Jesus who never disrupts or rearranges things, if you follow a Jesus who lets you do anything you want in your life and with your life, then friends, you have constructed an imaginary king made in your own image, made in your own likeness. Jesus, he's often forcing the issue, he's often rearranging the furniture, he will often force a decision from you of one sort or another. And if Jesus does not seem to be doing these things in your life, if you don't know really what I'm talking about right now, I'd like to encourage you this morning to begin asking why that might be. Jesus can and will transform every area of your life, but here's the thing. He only does so to the degree that you are willing to submit that area of your life to his kingship and therein lies a big problem. The problem with you and I is that quite often we really like to be the king and the ruler of our own lives. We're happy to crown him as king in some areas of our lives or at certain times in our lives, especially when we need his help, while effectively shutting him out of many other areas that we know deep down are in need of attention from him. But he will nevertheless force the issue at times. He will come in at times and begin going after that which you are putting between you and him. He will begin asking again and again, are you going to surrender that part of your life to me? He will be asking in this area of your life or in that area of your life whether you're going to crown him or whether you're going to crucify him. And so how is this going with you today? How is the king coming in and rearranging things in your own life today? How is he forcing the issue? What areas of your life is he asking you to surrender to him? And how are you responding to him? I remember when my first child was born, my daughter Amber, and when it was time to take her home from the hospital, we put her in the car seat, in the back seat of the car, and she looked so small, she looked so tiny and fragile in that car seat. And then I got in the front seat to drive home 
I was kind of nervous. I was topping out at 35 miles per hour in the slow lane on the freeway just to be safe. People were honking and giving me strange looks. I thought about putting my hazard lights on just to be extra safe, just so people would know that something serious was going down. It's a scary and significant day, that first day when your newborn is in the car with you. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But do you know what another really scary day is with your kid in the car? It's when they turn 16. Some of you know this, some of you don't, some of you soon will. But the day does come when you're expected to hand over the keys. And before I knew it, my daughter was moving from the passenger seat into the driver's seat, and it was, it was an unsettling time in many ways. It was a significant time, an exciting time, too, to switch places like that. Up until then, I had been doing all the driving. I had been choosing the destination. I had been choosing the route and the speed and the schedule while she was just along for the ride. But as we switched places with her now doing the driving, I had to surrender that control that I had. Now it was her making those decisions, and it was me who was just along for the ride. And by God's grace, we survived all this largely intact. She still can't parallel park very well, but we did survive that season. Friends, a lot of people find Jesus kind of handy to have in their life with them as long as he's in the passenger seat because something may come up where you need his help. You know, Jesus, I have a health problem. I need some help. I have a relationship problem. I really could use your help, Jesus. I want you in the car. I want you available. But I'm not so sure I want you actually driving the car all that often. But Jesus says, you need to crown me or crucify me. There is no in-between and to crown me does not mean I sit in the passenger seat. To crown me means I am in the driver's seat and you need to trust me there, even when you feel like taking those keys back. If he's doing the driving, you are no longer in control. You are no longer in charge of your life, and that is a difficult thing, but it can be an incredibly liberating thing too. The more you are willing to surrender and submit to him, the more you will be changed by this king and the more engaged and alive you will become. The king has arrived and he's coming in. Won't you let him in? Won't you let him fully in? Did you know that Palm Sunday was actually a sort of prelude to an event that is yet to happen? In fact, it foreshadowed something that is yet to come. You see, there will be another procession with King Jesus at its center, but this time things will be quite different. In his first coming, he came in humbly. He came in weakness. He rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey. But next time around, in his second coming, he will not be riding in humbly. He will not be riding in weakness either. Quite the contrary. As we close today, let me just read you a description of our king as he will be when he returns again to finish what he started. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, it says, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. 
and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is our King, friends, who has come and who is coming. And if you haven't yet crowned this Jesus as your King, I hope you'll do so this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that you send out your word and it does not return to you void, but it accomplishes all that you intend for it to accomplish in us. So would you do that now? Would you do that today? Would you use this passage and these words today to encourage us, to challenge us, to stretch us, to change us? Would you help us to see all the things that we may be allowing in too close, all the things that may be crowding you out in our lives? And would you make us a people who crown Jesus as the, as the rightful king over each and every area of our lives? Would you make us a people who welcome the disruptions, the turning of tables, the driving out of things, if it means we can enjoy deeper fellowship with you? We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.